So what unifies a people group? What unifies people together? I think there's a lot of different ways people can come together and be unified. Sometimes it's just through sports, right? Sports is a unifying thing. So when your team wins a championship, all of a sudden the city comes together, right? Growing up in Denver, not to be confused with Denver, all right? There were a lot of people calling Denver, Denver all weekend long, and I was like, it's Denver, guys. But not, so growing up in Denver, I, I watched the Broncos. My, my dad had season tickets. This was the 80s. Just think about the Broncos in the 80s. For those of you who don't know who are young, that think the Broncos were good. In the 80s, they were good enough to make it to the Super Bowl, but not win the Super Bowl. They were good enough to make it, not win it, and it was kind of disappointing. There was a bit of a letdown. And then in 1998, we finally did it. And I say we because the city of Denver came together. It was an us, although we had nothing to do. I had nothing to do with it. But we won, right? We won the big game. So sports can bring us together. Winning a championship brings us together. And then they threatened to, to move the team unless we build them a, a stadium. And very quickly I realized, there's no us. This isn't a we. They don't care about me. They just want my money. But think about like the Olympics as well, you know? We watch the Olympics and go United States. Yes, we're gonna come together and rally around sports. So sports can be a rallying cry. Sports can unite us. But oftentimes it's very temporary until that team goes back to trash and doesn't win anything anymore. What about values? Values can unite us, right? I mean, the United States of America are, are united around the values that the Constitution lays out with freedom, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those are the values that bring us together as United States citizens, right? Until we start to have disagreements on what exactly life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness means. When we talk about life, whose life do we mean? Do certain lives have more meaning and value over other lives? Are there some lives that don't matter at all? What about liberty? What does it mean to be free? What does it mean to have liberty and freedom? Does your liberty outweigh my liberty? What if your liberty infringes upon my liberty? Who's, whose liberty are we talking about here? And what about the pursuit of happiness? I mean, these are values that draw us together, that unite us as a people, and yet we can't even clearly define life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, can we? And so these values draw us together until they don't. Until they actually become a dividing point in our country. But what about crisis? Crisis unites people, don't, doesn't it? I mean, when 9-11 when happened, when, when the flights hit the Twin Towers, we were united as a people. In fact, the whole world united together for the United States, right? But it was short-lived, wasn't it? We see this through crisis oftentimes. How about the beginning of the pandemic? Two weeks to flatten the curve. We were all on board. I don't know anyone that was like, yeah, forget that. Everyone was like, yes, there, there is coming a deadly disease. We need to work together. We are going to flatten the curve. We are going to be a part of the solution. And it didn't take long for people to start twisting it for their own political purposes. 
And then all of a sudden there's this huge political fight and it was difficult to sift through the information. It was difficult to figure out, wait, which side is really right? And both sides are claiming science and both sides are saying, use the science, we follow the science. And yet I'm kind of at a loss here of like, what is really going on? So it didn't take long for us united together to help solve a world crisis to be divided in a world crisis. So what unites us? We see it even right now. The crisis going on in our own community. We saw such an amazing turnout these last couple days. We saw people unified together. People coming together, shaking hands, holding each other, crying, supporting each other, lifting each other up. But how long until that fades? You see, crisis can unify, but only for a short time. When we operate out of the world's system, when we operate according to Babylon the Great, which if you don't know what I'm talking about, we'll get to in a second. When you operate out of that system, unity can only be short-lived. And then what unites us will only divide us. And that's what we're going to talk about. That's what we're going to get into as one of the major themes as we continue our series in Revelation called Hopeful. We call it Hopeful because Revelation is a book that should give us hope. Now, there is a community right here, right now, that needs hope, don't we? We see some of the destruction, we see some of the devastation, and so where should we turn for hope? Well, I think Revelation is one of those books that we can turn to for hope because we know that in the end, after all is said and done, God is victorious. That's what gives us hope. That's what keeps us moving forward. Although we might have lost everything, in the end, we can still trust God. So we took a couple weeks off as we, uh, as we looked at Easter. So we're gonna, I'm going to do a really quick review to kind of remind us of where we're at. And then we'll jump into Revelation 18. So Revelation is a book that's surrounded by four visions. The first vision, John is called to write seven different letters to seven different churches. These seven letters to seven churches give us great insight into historical events, but also draws principles for how we should live today. After that vision, he's drawn up to heaven and he's given a second vision. The second vision shows us how the end times will unfold. And it's, it, it's really centered on three different, uh, seven, seven sets of, sorry, three sets of seven judgments. So we've got the seal judgments, that in the seventh seal, there is the trumpet judgments. In the seventh trumpet, there are the bowl judgments. And what it is showing us is how God will eventually judge the wickedness of the world. That ends with God's wrath being poured out. So it ends, the second vision ends with God's wrath being fulfilled or being finished. Now, some people get offended by this idea of God's wrath, but I think it's important for us to explain it really well because we like to emphasize God's love. And I think we should. God is love, right? But can a God who loves a creation not have any wrath when there is wickedness in the creation? God's wrath is a direct result of God's love. Because he loves you with a great love that is beyond your understanding, anytime someone abuses you, God's wrath is aroused. 
God's wrath is there because his love for you is so intense. Conversely, because God loves his creation, anytime you abuse someone else or sin or treat someone else harshly, you have to realize that that other person is God's creation. They bear the image of God. And so when you treat someone else harshly, you have just aroused God's wrath. So God's wrath is directly correlated with God's love. I always like to, to uh, compare it to uh, if there were a murderer that broke into your house and brutally tortured your family and killed them right in front of your eyes. And you just said, man, no big deal. I'm going to go eat a burrito. Would you actually love your family? That would show that you didn't care about your family at all. If that happened, my guess is because you love your family with an intense love, your wrath would be aroused. You would be fuming mad. The same is going on every day with God. He is watching as wickedness overtakes his creation and his wrath is aroused. So in the end of the second vision, we see God's wrath being poured out and his wrath will be completely poured out upon the earth. Now the bad news for you and I is you and I have both aroused God's wrath. Each one of us have rebelled against God. Each one of us have hurt other people that are created in God's image. Each one of us have offended God and aroused his wrath. And each one of us, therefore, will feel the effect of God's wrath, except because God loves you so much. He came to the earth, and he died on the cross. And when he died on the cross, he... he felt the wrath of God poured out on him. And he took the punishment you deserve for your rebellion against him. And so the whole earth will experience that wrath except for those who put their faith and trust in Christ. For those who say, God, I recognize that I have sinned against you. I recognize I have rebelled against you. I recognize that I have not held up to your moral standard and therefore I deserve your wrath. But I trust that your son took the place, took my place, and experienced your wrath in my place. Those who have put their faith and trust in Christ will not experience the wrath of God at the end of time. So that's how the second vision wraps up. Chapter 17 brings us into a third vision. This third vision is going to start off describing why the wrath of God is being poured out. So chapter 17 is all about the sins of the world. Now it uses this term, Babylon the Great and the prostitute. These two terms are used interchangeably and they are used to refer to the world system. The world system is anything that is in rebellion against God. So there is God's system of grace, and it, 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 God's system of grace describes everything that is willing to submit to God. The world system twists God's grace and says, your value is only dependent upon what you can give me. It is a world based on us trying to be God. And when you try to be God, you will fail. When I try to be God, I will fail. So the world system is a bunch of people that are shaking their fist at God saying, forget you, God, I want to be God myself. That's the world system. And it is a messed up, crooked, twisted system. 
So that's so chapter 17 is going to describe that system. We'll see how horrible it is. And then in chapter 18, which is what we're getting to today, there's going to be a contrast on the reaction of the judgment. So there will be a contrast between those who have profited off the world system and those who have put their faith and trust in God who are living under the system of God. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and read chapter 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in, a cup, in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since her heart, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and well over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men and sailors and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you, saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then the angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, 
so will Babylon the great be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of, bri of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. All right, there's a lot going on here. Let's go ahead and dig in. So it starts off with, after this, I saw another angel coming. So we're still in the third vision, but he sees another angel coming after the description of why Babylon will be judged. So this other angel is going to be contrasted with the beast. We saw the beast in the last part of the second vision, but we also saw the beast in uh, chapter 17. The beast ascended from the bottomless pit, if you remember, in chapter 17. So this angel is going to be contrasted with that beast. This angel will come down from heaven, and we see where the power of this angel, the might of this angel, is going to come down from, and that's from heaven. So he will receive his power from God, whereas the beast is trying to usurp power, this angel receives power. So he comes down from heaven, and he has great authority. Once again, this is in contrast with the beast. The beast is trying to usurp authority, whereas this angel is given authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. This is the only place in Revelation where we see something other than God having glory. Now, it's important to recognize since he's descending from heaven, the glory that he has is actually a reflection of God's glory. So this angel in and of itself doesn't have glory. It is the glory of God that he is reflecting, and it is going to make the entire earth bright with that glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. So essentially what he's saying is what you thought of as great, what you think is amazing, is actually become desolate. And I think it helps us sit, I think we need to ask the question, what do we think is great? What do you think is great? How do you define success? I think this would be a great conversation for you to have as you drive home with your kids today. What is success? What is great? How do you define it? And how do you show your kids? Do you value what God values? Do you value what Babylon the Great values? Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your time? What you invest your time? What you invest your treasure? What you invest your talents in? Is what you think of is great. Is it the things of God? Or is it the things of man? So Babylon, this, this city, this uh, system that they thought was so amazing, has fallen. It has become desolate. And then she, he goes on to describe what would be a, like a description of a ghost town. She has become a dwelling place for demons. So in antiquity, uh, people often thought of a wilderness as a place where demons would live. A haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for unclean bird, a haunt for unclean and detestable beasts. So once again, this is describing a ghost town, a place where there was once flourishing life, a booming city, now is a desolate place where only wild things live. 
for all nations have drunk. So this four here gives us the reason. Why has Babylon the great fallen? Well, it's because all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So Babylon the Great has been seducing all nations. This, so it's not just Babylon the Great that has fallen. We see that it's all nations that will follow along with her. So any person or nation that falls into the system of Babylon the Great, the system of rebellion against God, the system of trying to be your own God, will also fall along with Babylon the Great. So they have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. So the kings were the people with power, right? The rulers of the day. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power. So the merchants are those who are accumulating great wealth based upon this world system, based upon Babylon the Great. So we've got two groups of people that will also fall with her. Those are the king, those who are in power, but also the merchants, those who are also uh, accumulating wealth because of of her. The merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. So both king and merchants have been seduced by two things. And I think it's important for us to reflect on whether or not these two things are also seducing us. And those two things are desire and comfort. So the sexual immorality is both figurative and literal. Throughout the book of Revelation, there's this debate on whether things are figurative or whether they're literal. I think most of the time they're both figurative and literal. So these, the sexual immorality is a, a literal sexual immorality. These kings of the earth and these merchants are partaking in sexual immorality. But we also find throughout the book of Revelation that sexual immorality is also idolatry. And idolatry is making anything take the place of God in your life. Submitting to anything other than God in your life. So when you put wealth ahead of God, that's idolatry. When you put family ahead of God, that's idolatry. When you put your spouse ahead of God, that's idolatry. When you put your kids ahead of God, that's idolatry. When you put status and power and influence ahead of God. Maybe for you it's fun. Sometimes that's what seduces me. I just want to have fun, guys. It's idolatry. So Babylon the Great has seduced the kings and the merchants with desire. You can fulfill the desire of your heart. Come, partake in our system. Be a part of us. Follow your desires. And then it's also comfort. This luxurious living. You won't have to worry. You can just live in comfort. Don't trouble yourself with the worries of the world. So those are the two ways the kings and the merchants are being seduced. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, now this other voice is most likely the voice of God. It's coming from heaven. Every time we see throughout the book of Revelation that there's this voice from heaven, if it's not identified, it's the voice of God. And it is saying, come out of her, my people, lest you partake in her sins. So he's, 
once again, this is a literal, I think it's both literal and figurative come out. So this is a warning to those living in that day that if you are submitting to God, if you are following God, no longer partake and actually leave the cities that are partaking in the system of Babylon because he's about to destroy it. And you don't want to be accidentally destroyed, right? You don't want to be, it, it reminds me a lot of Lot and his wife. God calls out Lot, and he's telling them, get out of there. I'm about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. You don't want to be a part of it. Leave. But he also is calling them figuratively as saying, don't par be partakers. And for us, this is the warning. Don't partake in, in the system of Babylon the Great. Don't partake in the world system. Don't be seduced by the fulfilling of your desires. Don't be seduced by the comforts of this world. In fact, leave. And then he gives us the reason why. And there's two reasons. Lest you take part of her sins. So do not associate or become like her. Uh, be resolved to disassociate with her. Or you will be seduced as well. If you stay and you become a part of the system, you will also be seduced. And then the second reason is, lest you share in her plagues. So if you become seduced and you partake, then you will also be judged. Now there's a little bit of a question of like, well, is he saying that you're going to lose your salvation? I don't necessarily think that he's saying you're going to lose your salvation. I think what he's saying is that because you trusted in Babylon, because you trusted in the world system instead of Christ's system, I don't think you were ever saved to begin with. You might have called yourself a Christian. It's easy to call ourselves Christian, especially in a culture that's Christian, right? Yeah, I'm a Christian. I once had in high school, a, a guy told me that his dad was an atheist and his mom was a Christian, so he's half atheist, half Christian. And I was like, I don't think you understand how this actually works out. So there are a lot of people that call themselves Christian, and yet they're not putting their trust in Christ. They're putting their, their trust in the world system. And I think that's what he's getting at here, is that you're putting yourself, you're, you're trusting in the world system, and so you will share in the plagues of the world system. And then he goes on to, de to describe the reasons for the judgment. And I think as we read this, we should think of a courtroom setting. For her sins are heaped high as heaven. So he's making the case. And we see this so often throughout the book of Revelation that he is making the case. During the second vision, he kept on walking through that they would not repent, that they would not repent. He kept giving them opportunity to repent. After every single judgment, there's opportunity to repent. And yet they still didn't repent. And it's like God saying, hey, you, you can't claim that you didn't read the fine print. The fine print was right there in front of you the whole time. You understood it. You understood that God was creator, that you were in rebellion, and that you needed to repent, and yet you refused. And therefore, the judgment is here. And so he's doing that here as well with this courtroom setting. He's making the case for her sins. Sins are any moral failures. Anything that doesn't stand up to God's standard, I should say. Because oftentimes we make this idea that I'm not a moral failure. And you know what? Compared to my standards, I'm not a moral failure. But you know why? Because my moral standards are constantly changing. The world's moral standards are constantly changing. And you know what? If it's just strictly up to me, my moral will always change with how I am. I don't think it's okay to cheat and steal people. Well, until it benefits me. 
I don't think it's okay to have slaves. Well, until it benefits me. And we see that throughout humanity. Humanity's moral system is constantly changing as long as it benefits us. So we need a higher moral standard. That higher moral standard is God's moral standard. God's moral standard is not changing. He has a perfect moral standard. So sin is anything that doesn't meet that moral standard, and you and I both fell at that. Every single one of us has failed to meet God's moral standard. And once again, unless you put your faith and trust in Christ, you will experience God's wrath for that failure. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God remembered her iniquities. Iniquities are unjust acts. So a moral failure could be a passive thing, right? Like, I just didn't do something that God required me to. And inequity is more of an active rebellion against God. And all of us are guilty of both. You may not think you've ever rebelled against God, but have you ever heard God calling you to do something? And you said, you know what, God? I'm going to try things my way. I'm going to do things my way. That's an inequity. So because of her sins and her iniquities... Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. And repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. So this double portion idea is, it means that she will be fully paid for what she has done. There will be full justice. It's not going to be partial justice. There will be full justice dealt out by God. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury... So this idea, once again, we see this luxury that she is taking advantage of others so that she can live comfortably. But she's also glorifying herself. She cares about her glory and not the glory of God. So give her a like measure. This idea of like measure is that it will be in proportion to her crime. The world system will be judged in proportion to her crime. God, who is the creator, is the judge, and he will ensure that it is going to be in proportion to the crime. Since her heart says, so now he gets to the crux of it, and this is the attitude that she has, I sit as a queen. So we see that she is entitled. She thinks God owes her. I wonder how often we have a similar attitude, thinking that God owes us something. She goes on, I am no widow. Now, in ancient Rome, in the pagan culture, widows were the most looked down upon. You were considered kind of like the lowest of class to be a widow. And I think we need to compare that. That shows us the world system. The world system looks down upon widows. I think we need to contrast that with James 127, where he says, true religion is this, to take care of the widow and the orphan. God's system is always in contrasted with the world system. And God says that widows are to be cared for. The world system says widows are to be left out. They kind of cramp our style, you know. Who wants that needy person around? God says we need to take care of the needy. She goes on, And mourning I shall never see. And this reveals her arrogance. She thinks that she is untouchable. That no one can harm her. Now we can look back throughout history and see the empires of history. 
And I think we do see this developing in cultures that have empires. This entitlement that other countries exist to serve us. This idea that we are better than others in the world. And finally, this idea that we will never see the crumbling of our own society, our own culture. You look back through Roman culture, you can see it all the way through today. Any civilization that has become an empire begins to have this type of arrogance, thinking they are untouchable. And it is always going to be to their doom. So this specifically is talking about Babylon the Great, but I think we can pull some of these principles and apply them to our own culture. And I think it's a huge warning for Americans. We need to make sure that we don't live entitled lives. We need to make sure that we are caring for the least in our society. And we need to make sure that we do not become arrogant. And he says for, for always gives us reasons. Why? Or, right? So for this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. Because she is arrogant, because she thinks she's untouchable, it's going to happen faster than she realizes. Death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. So that's the judgment that's going to come in one single day. One single day there will be entitlement and arrogance. And in a matter of a day there will be humility and humiliation. For, God, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. She thought she is mighty, but it is actually God who is mighty, and God is the judge. And then we get into three different funeral songs for her. So that's the judgment upon Babylon the Great. We know why Babylon the Great is going to be judged. Now comes the two contrasting responses. So we'll first see three different responses from the kings, from the merchants, and from the seafarers. And then we'll see God's response. So the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality with her. Once again, this is both literal and figurative and lived in luxury with her, will weep and well over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment. So these kings of the earth, they're committing sexual immorality, they're committing idolatry with her, but they're also living in luxury. They're getting wealthy because they are the rulers of the earth. They're getting wealthy off of bribes. That's the idea that's going in here. They're getting wealthy by keeping the poor man down and the wealthy remaining wealthy. That's the idea. They're accepting bribes. They're you know, scratching certain backs so that they can remain in power and that they can have wealth. And so when they see Babylon the Great, they're going to weep. And they're going to well. They're going to mourn over her. But they're not going to mourn for her. That's important for us to, to understand. Alas, alas, so these alasses, and every single group will say this, and it's just a cry out. They're just crying out. You great city, you mighty city Babylon, for a single hour your judgment has come. So they recognize that the city is great, and yet the grief is there. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys her cargo anymore. And then we're going to see a list of this cargo. 12 and 13 will give us a list 
Pliny the Elder has a similar list to them, and his list is like the most desired things in all of Rome. So this list kind of gives us the idea of this most desired thing. And you can see as you read through the list how desirable these things are. I think it's important at, later on this week as you read through the list, kind of take an inventory of your house. How many of these things in your house are in your house? This is emphasizing the luxury that they're living in. And we can highlight a couple of them. Slaves, that is human souls. So they've come, come to the point where they no longer see humans as image bearers of God. But they view humans, they view their fellow human being as cattle to be sold and traded. And the emphasis that we see here is slaves. That, so he's emphasizing, hey, you're, you're trading these slaves like they're cattle. And then he says, that is human soul. So he's emphasizing, hey, you've missed the point. You've missed it all together. You see, you see these image bearers of God as if they're cattle. And yet, these image bearers of God have human souls. They are image bearers. You should not dehumanize fellow humans. I think that although you may not be a slave trader, it is important for you to take that principle to heart as well. As we look around at people, people that might disagree with us, instead of hating them, view them as fellow image bearers. There are a few people that are making big news recently for maybe certain ideologies that they're pushing forward. And it is really cool for Christians right now to kind of trash talk them. And don't get me wrong, some of their ideologies I think are pure evil ideologies. But instead of trash talking them, do you pray for them? Instead of trash talking them and their ideology, do you view them as fellow image bearers? Does your heart weep for them? I think it's important for us to do that. Now, don't get me wrong. We don't need to agree with their ideology, that wicked ideology that they're pushing. But before we spew hate towards them, we better be praying for them. We better be weeping for them. So slaves, that is human souls. The other thing I want to highlight is wheat. And I, I want to highlight wheat because it shows a bit of a contrast. Most of us don't pick up on this, but the poor man ate barley. The wealthy man ate wheat. So he's emphasizing the luxury. This is in, wheat was a luxury item for the Romans. So he's emphasizing this luxury item. And I don't want to guilt trip us. You know, as, as you go through later on this week and you take inventory of your house and you see everything that you might have that's in this list, you probably have quite a few things. I don't want you to, to be guilt-tripped into this, but I do want you to take inventory and ask yourself, is what I own a necessity or is it a luxury? Now, I love mountain biking. Most of you who come here often know that I love mountain biking. And I have been asked before, is there a big difference between a $100 mountain bike and a $1,000 mountain bike? And I will tell you, yes, there is a tremendous difference. In fact, on some of the hills that I go down, 
If I took a $100 Walmart mountain bike, it would not last, and I would probably end up in the hospital. Or at the bare minimum, I would be hiking a bike out of that trail. So there is a huge difference between the two. I couldn't tell you, though, there are some mountain bikes that are 15, 20, even all the way up to $30,000. Now, I can't tell you, in all honesty, whether or not there's a difference between a $1,000 mountain bike and a $30,000 mountain bike. I've never had the luxury of trying one. I bring that up because I have to weigh my wants, my needs, and what is a luxury. To me, a $30,000 mountain bike is a luxury. I don't need one. I think it would actually be a sin if I bought one. I'm not saying it would be a sin for you to buy a mountain bike. I think that's important. Let's say you're a mountain bike racer, and you, that's how you make your living. You make money off of it. Maybe a $30,000 mountain bike would actually be a, a decent purchase for you. But for me, that's a luxury item. So the whole point that I think we need to, to wrestle with, and the point I want you to wrestle with, is when you purchase something, is it a want? Is it a need? Is it a luxury item? And if it's that luxury item where you're just blowing money on something, I think what we see here is that is a sin. That's hard sometimes for us to hear in America because we are surrounded by luxury items. Not only are we surrounded by luxury items, we're surrounded by advertising for luxury items. Not only are we surrounded by advertising by, for luxury items, but we're surrounded by people that buy luxury items like it's no big deal. We're constantly surrounded by people that are throwing their money away on things that they don't need. Do you need a 10th car? We know people that only have two people in their family that have like 20 cars. Meanwhile, there are people that are starving. Once again, I don't want to make this a guilt trip. I think it's important for us to examine how we use our money. Are we using it to glorify God, or are we using it to glorify ourselves? That's the point. And that's what these merchants are doing. They're taking their money to glorify themselves. That's the point. All right? So, They've given us this whole list of how they are glorifying themselves, how they've even come to the point where they're seeing human souls as just mere cattle. And then they say, the fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. So they're, they're grieving over Babylon the Great. The fruit of which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and all your splendor are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchant of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, for the, alas, so those, those, whoa, whoa, the crying out for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and fine jewels and pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid to waste. So we see once again, All of this stuff that they have accumulated, that they have put their trust in, that they had hoped for, is gone. 
And it's a stern warning for us not to hope in the material things of this world. The material things of this world will let you down, no matter what. Whether you lose them in a fire. We know all too well this week that homes and everything in the home can be gone in a heartbeat in a fire. But let's pretend that you didn't lose anything in a fire. Most of you didn't. I didn't. Do I still trust in those things? All of those things at some point in your life is going to let you down. If you are putting your hope in things, you will be let down. Where do you put your hope? Is it in God or is it in things? And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all those who trade is on the sea. So the shipmasters here are what we would consider captains. The seafaring are the merchants that run the ships. And the sailors are those who, who uh, also live and work on the ships. And all, all, those whose trade, the, all those whose trade is on the sea are the fishermen. Now something interesting about this is that uh, the, these groups were coming together and there were some fairly large fishing and shipping companies that were using and bribing the governing officials to make laws and rules that would help them prosper while pushing the smaller ones out of business. We saw this in uh, 2008, the Dodd-Frank Law. I don't know if anybody's familiar with that. It's actually a pretty uh, unknown law. The Dodd-Frank Law happened when the, the 2008 housing bubble crashed. And one of the blame, one of the big groups that took blame for that was the secondary mortgage group. So the secondary mortgage, you know, or lending groups, they would come, they'd find people that didn't have great credit, and they'd lend to them, and eventually that built up this big bubble, the bubble burst, that was who got the blame. So all these lawmakers got together and started making these laws about banks. Now, the biggest proponent of these laws were big banks. Now, you might think to yourself, why are Wells Fargo and Chase Manhattan, why are they trying to pass these restrictions on banks? I have a good friend who's an executive for a bank, a small bank. Actually, he's not anymore. Now he's with a credit union, a, a small credit union in California. He opposed these laws. He fought hard against them. And the reason why he fought hard and the reason why those big banks wanted them is because the smaller banks and the credit unions couldn't afford the lawyers to jump through all the hoops. The big banks, they saw this as an opportunity to say, hey, we're doing good. We want these laws and restrictions so that we never have a housing market bubble again. Meanwhile, we could put all these other banks out of business and we don't have this competition. It's crazy how this happens, and it happens all the time. Now, I didn't want to get too political, but I think it's important for us to understand that's what's happening here. That's why he's, he is singling out these ship uh, captains, shipmasters, seafaring men, sailors, and fishermen, because that's exactly what they were doing as well. They were bribing the kings and the governing officials so that they could put the smaller businesses out of business. And what they're doing is emphasizing profits over people. Now, don't get me wrong. I think profits are good. Profits are a good thing. You go into business to make profit. It's when you emphasize 
profits over people that it becomes bad. And when you emphasize profits so much so that you're willing to sacrifice people and you're willing to do unfair trading practices and you're willing to bend laws or bribe others, that it becomes evil. And the world system is full of evil corporations that are doing this, that are trying to twist laws and put others out of business. So profits are good, but not at the expense of people. That's why he emphasizes this, is because these people cared more about profits than they did about people. So these sailors, they stood far off and they cried out as they saw the smoke burning over. What city was like this? And they threw dust on their heads and they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by their wealth. For in a single hour, she has been laid waste. Let's go to the slide here. So the kings, the merchants, and the seafaring men all had these things in common. One is that they welled in grief. They were crying out in grief. They grieved at the loss of Babylon the Great. They all recalled the hour of judgment. That it's only a single hour. That it happens quickly. And then finally, and this I think is one of the most important things, they all stand far off. And this, this idea that they stood far off is very revealing. And it shows us that their welling in grief isn't for Babylon the Great. And it's not for all the people that perish in Babylon the Great. Their welling is for their own loss. They're no longer going to be living in luxury. They're no longer going to be the ones in power. They're no longer going to be the ones in control. That's what's going on here. They're not grieving over the others. They're grieving because their lifestyle that they're used to is no longer going to be available for them. And this, in a nutshell, summarizes the world's system. This, in a nutshell, summarizes what's happening in Babylon the Great. And I think this, in a nutshell, summarizes what we see in our communities all the time. That others are things to be used. just to build my wealth, just to build my comfort. And when you are no longer usable, I will grieve over my wealth, I will grieve over my comfort, but I will not grieve over you. That is the world's system in a nutshell. But then we pick up in verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. So we see the merchants, the kings, and the seafaring men all are grieving, not over their loss but they are of Babylon, but over the loss of their lifestyle, contrasted with what is happening in heaven. And what's happening in heaven is the rejoicing. This seems a little weird, doesn't it? Typically, we don't rejoice over crisis. But this is a contrast, and the rejoice, although is odd, but I think what we're doing is we're turning back to this courtroom scene. Now, if you will, picture with me a man on trial for killing your family, and you're there for the sentencing. Let's say the judge says you're innocent. You know he killed him. He killed him right in front of you. The judge says he's innocent. How do you react? probably grieve. Justice is not happening. I was just talking with a man the other day 
whose daughter was killed. The man is going to the sentencing here next month. He's nervous about it. If he is in the courtroom and the judge says guilty on all charges, there will be joy in his heart because he knows justice is being served. And that is what's going on here. They're not rejoicing just because they want to be mean. They're rejoicing because God's justice is something to take joy in. God's justice is, is real, and it is more full than we can picture. So even if that man that killed the other man's daughter does get sentenced, there's, it's not true justice because it's not God's justice. And we all, to a certain extent, in our hearts, crave true justice. And when God comes and he, he wipes out Babylon the Great, we will see true justice for the first time. And it is something to rejoice over. So that's what's going on here is that they will rejoice over God's justice. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence. This term thrown is a future tense, so he's explaining to John how it will happen in the future. Uh, but uh, if we look back into chapter 17, we know that, that Babylon, the great, will fall in two ways. The first way is there will be a civil war, that they will turn on each other, that there will be division. Once again, we see that in the world system, unity can only last so long. There will be division in the world system. And secondly, it will fall when Christ returns. So it will come down with violence and will be found no more. So as a stone is thrown and sinks to the bottom of the deepest pits of the ocean, so will Babylon violently end and never come again. And the sound of the harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters uh, will be heard no more. So this is sound of entertainment. So that entertainment that the Babylon the Great has used to seduce people will be heard no more. And craftsmen and, uh, of any craft will be found no more. And the sound of the mill will be found no more. So this is the sounds of, it, of the economy. The economy that was heard in Babylon the Great. This great uh, wealth-producing economy will be no more. The light of the lamp will shine in you no more. So this is describing the, a sight of everyday life will be seen no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard no more. And these are sounds of celebration and hope. A wedding is not just a celebration, but it's also a sign of hope. When two people come together and create a new family, we know that life is moving forward, that life will continue on. But this will happen no more in Babylon the Great because there will no longer be hope in Babylon the Great. This will be contrasted here in a few chapters with the wedding feast that all believers will participate in. And that shows us the sign that, the, that all believers will have continual hope. And then he gives us the reason why. And oftentimes in ancient Rome, crimes were read at the sentencing. So this is the sentencing of Babylon the Great. And here is a list of the crimes. Once again, for your merchants were the great ones of the earth. Once again, they took people over prophets. They didn't care about people. They only cared about amassing their own wealth. 
and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. So the decept- this is emphasizing deception and manipulation. That's one of the ways that they became wealthy and powerful. The word sorcery here is the same word that we get the, the word pharmakia on, or, or I should say from. And it is, I think, both a literal and figurative sorcery. So part of the emphasis here is to emphasize the manipulation that will occur with Babylon the Great. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints, but not just the blood of the prophets and the saints, but of all who have been slain on the earth. Babylon the Great is the world system, and the world system is a system in rebellion against God. Therefore, anyone who has been murdered is a result of the world's system. So those are the charges against Babylon the Great. This week, we had a news crew here. I don't know if anybody saw that. Some people I heard were a little bit upset because they felt like the story got a little bit twisted. And I've kind of thought about that a little bit. I didn't actually watch the news story. I think I saw part of it. But, but you know that happens so often in news, doesn't it? Like, if it bleeds, it leads, right? I mean, the news, does the news really care about what's happening here? Or do the news stations really care about their ratings? And to me, the descriptions that I heard about that news story was that it was a description more about the ratings, the care of, you know, will people tune in or not? And there were some people I heard that felt a little bit used because of that. Because the news comes in with their cameras, they're going to, you know, promote things, and then they just twist for their own ratings. That's the world system. I'll use you until you're not convenient for me anymore, and then I'll move on. Have you ever felt used? Have you ever felt mistreated? Have you ever felt like there were people in your life that would use you as long as you were convenient, and then as soon as it was convenient, they would dump you to the side? That is the world's system. But the system of God is different. God loves you with a love that is unimaginable, with a love more intense than you could ever know, a love so intense that although you have aroused his wrath, he was willing to come and actually suffer that wrath on your part, and he will never just use and abuse you and throw you out. God's love is here for you, and it is eternal. This is a God that you can put your faith and trust in. Do you trust God with your life? Or are you still looking to the world system? Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We recognize that, Lord, we (laughs) constantly get seduced back into the world system, constantly get seduced by luxuries and trying to fulfill our heart's desires. And yet we know there is something greater because you are greater. You are greater than the world system and you love us with a love that is unimaginable.
Lord, we pray that you would help us to reshift our focus from living in luxury to living a life that reflects your glory. In your name we pray.